following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Have you heard about Moo Money? Moo Money? Moo Money is a rewards program that lets you earn cash every time you buy real milk. I use mine to buy movie tickets. Movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. It was a musical. Uh-huh. Anyway, just head to MooMoney.com to start earning moolah. Got it. Moolah. Hurry, or everything I told you will be moot. Oh, please, no more moos. Someone's a little moody. Open to legal residents of the state of California, 18 years of age or older. Visit MooMoney.com for official rules, terms, and conditions. Being an entrepreneur has this, you know, this, you're playing with fire a lot because you have this this need to get people like you're they're all looking at you what do i do like they all want to know what's going to happen next and you literally are the person who's standing there in a sometimes a room that's on fire and you like point them to one direction and say that's where we're gonna go and and hopefully when you go there there's no fire and 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 sometimes there still is and so it's always this this uh this this is crazy excitement that's why you have to be psychotic to be an entrepreneur Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 Podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. Today, we have Brian Wong on the show. At 19, he founded his company, Keep. Keep is a mobile advertising network that connects consumers and brands, but in a very specific way. Keep flashes an ad that relates to a user's specific in-app moment, and that ad comes with a reward or tip. Brian, am I explaining it correctly? Yeah, yeah, we we are uh, basically a network of apps where we realize that when people do things actively in those apps, so let's say uh, log a run, cross off a to-do, finish a workout, in these moments, instead of an annoying ad, we said, why not actually have a brand reward you? And that was sort of the insight. And we have all this conversation today about how advertising can be quite interruptive and annoying. We said, let's just not even use the original concept of an ad, but rather change it into a, something entirely different, which is a reward. So you're sort of cheering people on. Like if I was brushing my teeth with an oral B toothbrush, I would get points for that? I, I could get points for that? Yeah, so that's actually live as of a month ago. We are now rewarding people in the Oral-B Connected Toothbrush Series. So essentially you could finish brushing your teeth. Let's say you did your allotted two minutes or yeah. whatever the, the dentist uh, recommend. Here's uh, you know an Uber credit for your first ride to your first meeting or something like that. So we've kind of created a, a model where we can – egg you on, make you excited, and bring the brand in and benefit off of that excitement. Let me ask you this. If I was having a snack in the middle of the night, would I be rewarded or faulted for that snack? (laughs) There would have to be an accompanying app that would track that snack. Maybe you would be uh, scolded slightly if you were to track that. It seems like that I shouldn't be rewarded for that kind of behavior. Yeah. Exactly. We actually try to do things that go both ways. So taking moments that aren't so positive. So let's say you did poorly in the game or having a bad streak, uh, a brand might be there to lift you up. So there's sort of multiple ways we want to do it. Mostly positive reinforcement is kind of how we go about it. But there's some other stuff too. It, It sounds like you're playing a little bit off the internet of things, right? The idea that everything we do is connected now. And so you can kind of harness um, and leverage that connection th- through your company. Yeah, I think the basic way we've seen the ad ecosystem grow is it's always tried to use content to reach you. So let's say let's put an ad in a, 
a magazine or a TV show or, or, or something that you're watching or viewing, we said the next frontier is going to be around doing your behaviors. Right. And that's because we can now track practically everything. Um, and so IoT is just a, another way to say that everything around you is going to have that connection to the internet. Yeah. And then therefore everything is real time. So, um, you know, there's definitely this creepy factor that I'm going to go, go ahead and proactively address where a lot of what we've been attempting to do is if we're the first to it, that's kind of how we can set some of the initial parameters. And yeah. a lot of it's around frequency capping and making sure that not every time you do something, you get rewarded, but rather based on some notable moment in time right. and something that's super, super relevant to what you've just done. What do you, sorry, what do you mean frequency capping? Just making sure that you don't get more than a certain number of XYZ per day or per week mm -hmm. and tracking them across your uh, behavior. So knowing that it's the same person that's doing that workout in the morning and maybe playing that game in the afternoon and not bombarding you because otherwise then your whole life could technically run off of free stuff. Right. But we, that's obviously not economically feasible. So we want to make sure that there's a, a nice rhythm to it. Is there a, an idea that Keep um, has launched or that you that you've done where you've 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 in theory it was you know it was going to work out and then you put it to practice and either in your language maybe it was too creepy or it did go too far and you said we got to pull this back has it ever happened? You know it's happened in a very surprising way. So we started to sort of see what would what it would be like if we did like extremely valuable rewards. Like we're talking fifty dollars in value plus. Mm -hmm. And what happened was people just didn't want them because they thought it was a scam. So what we realized was the more valuable a reward was that was presented to you, the more likely someone was to think of it as a scam. So you needed to think of it. You needed to. We had a value range that we now know is like within reasonable range of people actually believe that it could be given to them. Right. That's typically you know between like a dollar to like ten bucks. Anything more than that, people start to get very skeptical. And you become part of their habits, right? Yeah. Um, I think what we're trying to do is figure out how people uh, behave regularly on these devices and then find moments where uh, they are potentially in need of something and then bring a brand in in that appropriate moment. Um, it's really this phrase we've been talking about is moments-based marketing. It sounds very buzzwordy. Right. We believe that the way that the world is growing is, is through all these moments in time and how we interact with our devices. And uh, there's a finite number of them. Um, and the more that you are able to create something super relevant then and there, it's all about that quality versus quantity. The whole advertising world, as you know, has been based on frequency for the longest time. But now we realize that frequency is more so an annoying experience than something that's valuable. So if we change the landscape ever so slightly to something based on actual quality and, and engagement, then the consumer thinks about it differently, the advertiser thinks about it differently, and I think the overall user experience of what we do on our digital uh, media will improve as well. But do you think, Brian, this says anything about the, the generation now that is uh, both overwhelmingly connected and does need constant validation? <laughs> yes. Uh, there's not much I can do about it. <laughs> it's already happened. <laughs> Other than play to we're it, yeah. Yeah, we're going to play to it. And we're going to make sure that people are given an experience that is, you know, pretty, pretty controlled and managed. But I think, yeah, I think we're very spoiled. I think we do expect things instantly. I think it comes with the technology. You know, I've, you know, we've all ordered our, 
our Uber Eats or Postmates. And if it takes more than like 30 minutes, you start to get antsy and you're like, okay, what do I, who do I call to like right. rush this? And so it's like, we, we now have this ridiculous set of expectations, but I think it's only going to get worse. And I think it's only an opportunity though for more and more brands to help to facilitate, you know, better, more instant gratifying type experiences. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background. I think that's interesting for people who who follow this show. But you're one of those guys that like you you graduated UBC at 18. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And you, now, how did that fast track come about? So I grew up in Canada and Vancouver, and uh, the education system there has a few programs where you can kind of skip ahead, and okay. a lot of it entails you taking IQ tests which is, I mean, the most perfectly imperfect way to measure intelligence. And so it's like, let's take those. I skipped a bunch of grades, four to be exact, and then got in at 14. At 14? Mm-hmm. So you were at UBC at 14? Yes. On campus? Yes. Running around my backpack, people were thinking I was lost and I was looking for my dad or my mom. What did that look uh, like? What was that experience like for you? It was quite surreal. I mean, I I loved university and the freedom it gave me in terms of the different classes I could take, the different campus activities I could get engaged in, as long as I didn't need to, to have be legal drinking age, um, which which is eight to nineteen in BC, right? Yeah, yeah, it's nineteen in, yeah. in British Columbia. Um, but I had my brother's ID. That's besides the point. So, yeah. anyways, I did have kind of a pretty full college experience, and I think and it. And this is, you know, general perception, and it's true. As, as, as an Asian, people had no idea how old I was. Like, <laughs> I could be very deceptive in terms of my age. So I, I, I was definitely able to get around and get people sort of, you know, looking at me weirdly, but it was fine. It, it ended up turning out great. Okay, so it wasn't at all. I mean, to me, it seems like if you were at, like I found university. By the way, I'm also Canadian uh, from nice. the other side, the East Coast. Um, but you, I mean, I, a university can be an isolating I- experience, I think, for people. But at 14, 15, it didn't feel that way for you or you were so engaged in, in, uh, in the material? I think I was just so ignorant of all the social constructs that usually plague people and their ability to interact and be nervous that I was just saying hi to everyone and anyone and um, quickly became uh, – you know, sort of the 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 young kid on campus, and used that to my advantage to like win student government elections and stuff like that. Right. So I ended up getting quite involved in programs like that, and then yeah, it all kind of flowed from there. It was it was a great first you know sort of uh, experience, kind of with a much wider group of people. I, I think growing up too, because I was in these these gifted learning programs, I was definitely really. Uh, sort of excluded from uh, the broader student population. We we were always kind of in these smaller groups because mm-hmm. they would put us in these separate separate programs. But uh, this was it was a lot of fun. It was it was kind of like just the puppy when you first meet everyone. That was kind of how it was like for like three years. Um, it was pretty great. <laughs> well, have you always been that kind of guy who's like an old soul or somebody who gives advice? <laughs> because you've written books uh, on on <laughs> advice for companies and startups and. Like I, I don't know if you were somebody that people turned to for advice. Yeah, I think it just so that's the book was interesting. It came mainly because of what you mentioned briefly there, where people actually did come and ask a lot of questions, specifically younger entrepreneurs that felt that I was more 
uh, like sort of within reach and then and then at least welcoming and friendly and sort of wanting to have that conversation, especially when you don't want to talk to someone who's succeeded in some way. It's a bit intimidating, but for them, it felt more comfortable kind of speaking with me. And then I realized that I was repeating myself a lot. And so I said, okay, why don't I put some of the stuff into a, a, you know, written form? And then that's kind of how the book came about. The book, sorry, is it called The Cheat Code? Yes. So that came out late last year. And uh, the whole premise of it was to have something that was short form, allowed people to sort of act on things immediately and not need to wait and uh, let things simmer or do like a giant life hack that completely changes your your course, but rather something you could apply in the next five minutes. Right. Well, let's and go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say let's fill in the picture a little bit of how, where you got these actionable tidbits, which is, I mean, because you t- talk about the decision to move to San Francisco when you were eighteen. Yeah. So it was just right after the financial crisis. Uh, it was, you know, the economy was pretty slow, very, very tough to get jobs, and I had a, you know, bit of a tech background because I learned how to do graphic design, had a web design. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of shop growing up uh, with a few of my buddies in college and we were already kind of working with, with clients and we built some stuff. Anyway, so I was like, let me check out Silicon Valley. So I went down there um, and I, had, I knew nobody and most people have this problem. They're like, I don't know anybody there. I'm like, okay, well, go find people to get to know and start to reach out to them. So what I did was I actually found like a whole bunch of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and I just cold emailed them and I said, Hey, I'm Brian. I have this web design company. I created this thing called follow formation. It was like a yeah. Twitter app at the time. And then I just said, Hey, let's meet up for 15 minutes. And, uh, I met up with a whole bunch of people and I, I did it the hard way. I didn't like do any sort of mail merging or automated stuff. I just customized an email to, I think, about 50 people, I would say, email. Then I got seven meetings, I think, out of that and ended up just littering my day with meetings. And then I ended up, you know, one thing led to another. And then I got a job at Dig from that set of uh, meetings. And uh, it was all very serendipitous. And when I got the job, that's when I obviously decided that moving down uh, obviously had to make sense and got my visa and then moved down. And then ever since that, those habits haven't changed. Any anywhere I go, uh, even if I already know people, I reach out. I want to constantly meet new people. And I think the problem that people have is they have this fear that this other person doesn't care about them. Or do- most of the time, probably they don't. But it's your job to make sure they do want to care about you, right? And you give them reasons to care about you, and you address them and their needs specifically. Obviously, you wouldn't reach out to someone super random. It has to be someone somewhat related to your field, right? And then use that as a way to to, to propel. Uh, but there's always going to be people that you run into in your lives, and I believe that I, I covered it in the book called Hubs. And these are people that just happen to know everyone. It just seems to be these people that are hyper-networked. And once you hit a bunch of these hubs and you get to know them really well, it just begins to exponentially propel you into another area in terms of how many people you can eventually get to reach. There is a limit. You don't want to over-network yourself, of course. You want to at least have enough time to do your own stuff and actually yeah. create so bottom line is the more you can create, the more you have to show for it, that you have this this ability to execute, you have a basis for people who, A, want to actually get to know you in the first place, and B, for you to actually work with them on something or potentially do something together. And taking a quick break to say that this show is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. However you move your business forward, with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. It's like being ready to be lucky. 
Correct. It's that's you know essentially the serendipitous concept I was discussing, and it's like w- there's a whole chapter around generating serendipity. It's like people think that luck happens to them. You can actually create luck. All you have to do is find the right environments yeah. that are conducive to your strengths. If you're, that's why people move to cities that they think are part of what they like to do. So if you're into Broadway acting, you got to get to New York. Yeah. If you're into, you know, if you're into fashion, you want to be in Paris or Milan. I mean, this makes sense, right? And that's kind of how I think people should think about it. And yeah, if you're into tech, you right. don't necessarily have to live in San Francisco, but definitely pass through the tech hubs of the world because you're going to find people there that will eventually be able to help you. That's like that Ben Hogan quote, right? The, the golf is a game of luck. The more I practice, the luckier I get. You said you you were in biz dev. I always like this part. I, I looked through your book, and, and I, I one of my favorite parts is you talk about biz dev is, is one of the greatest positions you can have because nobody knows what the hell you're doing. Yep, and I recommend it to everyone who may not have like a specific uh, sort of set of expertise where they want to go into – you know, data science or be specifically in product management right off the bat, but you you join a startup or a company in business development, it gives you a great sort of cross-organization view because you get thrown into multiple projects, you don't necessarily have a strict quota, and your job title is so vague, you can use it to essentially get anywhere. You can get into events, you can speak and stuff, you can do, I mean, obviously, you know, there's some, you know, approvals you might need before you do it. Actually, Mm -hmm. for me with Big, I didn't even get approvals. I just went ahead and said, hey, I'm this dev at Dig. Let me speak at your, your conference. And the hilarious thing was after a while – no, actually, I haven't really shared this before. After a while, the head of PR at Dig at the time, and this woman, Michelle Husak, I still really like her. She's amazing. She was like, let's um, uh, do media training um, for all the top execs. Yeah. And um, I wasn't an exec, clearly, but she's like, hey, Brian, you have to come to this because you've already inserted yourself into so many conferences and media uh, circuits. You're going to have to be media trained. And so that's actually how I got media trained um, was because of the fact that I intentionally went into things without getting permission. Right. And then um, and then nothing bad happened. Now, again, like, you know, you, you want to make sure you're not being destructive. But this is why I always tell people is like you always do first ask for forgiveness later. Um, right. You know, especially in situations where it isn't life or death, right? This I have to remember people. We're so lucky to be in this field. And it's, what I'm more specifically talking about is anything really in tech or digital products, because it's not like if you fail, people are going to die, right? It's different if you're going into the medical field. Yes, you can't yeah. just ask for forgiveness when you're doing a heart surgery. People are going to die. But when you talk about this type of thing, it isn't. It's So the, the, what's the worst that could, that could happen, right? And that's actually one of the other chapters in the book. And that's kind of how I, I look at most of the things that I go into. Well, I think you're right. I mean, if you're not pushing, no one's there to help you, right? People aren't yeah. waking up every day saying, how can I make Brian's life a little bit easier in his biz yeah, dev when you, role? When you, move the, when you push the envelope, when you try to do things above and beyond, people notice that you're taking the initiative and they will gravitate to help push you. People want to propel you when they see someone who is moving in that direction. It's, it's really quite amazing. And then I always, you know, sort of like to help people develop this mindset around, you know, rejection. You know, people always are afraid of someone telling them no. But my number one rule is if you're not getting enough no's, that doesn't that means you're not trying hard enough. Right. Right. And if you actually get rejections, it means you're asking for people for enough yeses. And it's actually a really good sign. And so that's kind of how I push my sales folks and everyone is like, yeah, you want to ask people for crazy stuff because <laughs> yeah. how else are you going to know if they're going to say yes or no? And if they say yes, 
my God, your life just changed. It's like a magic wand. And it's not like if they said, no, your life was any different before you asked the question. So you have everything to gain, nothing to lose by asking. That's right. I live in LA and the actors will say that here. They say a good actor, you know, gets rejected from three auditions a week and a really good actor gets rejected from 15 auditions a week. Exactly. Where um, I'm interested in the advice you have for entrepreneurs who how, how can people assess weaknesses? Because I know that's something that you've looked at. Yeah. So there's this whole concept of knowing your superpower that I introduce in the book. And it really is pointing out there comes a point in your, your growth as a person where you stop focusing on trying to fix all the things you're not good at and you focus on the things that you are. And, you know, it's okay to have things you're not get. Everyone has the, and the problem when we're growing up is it's not really a problem. It makes sense, at least to a certain degree where, you know, you get your B or your C or your C minus yeah. or whatever you get tutoring, you improve on that. Great. But to try to focus a lot of your energy on trying to make that great doesn't make any sense because it's just not in the cards for you. So for me, you know, it's really about focusing on taking something that you're really, really good at and, and, and really polishing that and making it your day-to-day. For me, my superpower is I'm really good at getting people super excited about stuff. It's what I do all the time now. It's with new employees, existing employees, new customers, you know, investors, you name it. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly using that skill. Um, there are things that I know I'm not amazing at. Like I'm just really terrible at you know, sort of anything, let's say, financial related. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe. But yeah, I just, my eyes just completely glaze over when I'm sitting in front of a spreadsheet. But there are people on my team that love that. And then so we complement each other amazingly well. So finding people with complementary superpowers is one of the best ways to build teams um, that will stick together for a long, long time. So for instance, who is the best complimentary uh, – what is the best complimentary skill set to you? Somebody just obsessing over the, over the, over the, the finances? Yeah, well, someone obsessing over the finances, but more, more importantly, someone who is the – and sort of like the yin and yang to my energy and my optimism. So you know, my co-founders when we were starting a company, they were both very grounded, had very realistic expectations of everything, was always the first to remind me, oh, but dude, it doesn't actually work that way. Right. And that was incredibly important because if there's three super enthusiastic, optimistic people in the company, it would be really bad. Right? Nothing so would get make, done. Make sure you need that yin and yang. Well, you, one thing you talk about is vanity metrics. And I'm curious, what, first of all, what is a vanity metric? It's just a metric that looks really big and is designed to make you look really good. And <laughs> so, what are Keep's vanity so metrics? Yeah, it's something like I walked, you know, five hundred steps to get here. You know, it's just like, oh my god, that sounds so impressive. Like, you know, it just you just want to create uh, something that that gets people excited. It, it, vanity metrics can obviously be very dangerous yeah. if you're actually using it to to measure real progress. But it is important because it creates that excitement and the, 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 the movement. And people want to be a part of something that's moving forward, right? People want to be a part of something that has momentum. And the more you can show that, the better. Now, I think as a founder, the ultimate balance you have to do on a daily basis is making sure you're realistic with yourself. You know where things are going. But then at the same time, be able to bring people along with you and show them that things are actually moving in the right direction. Now, sometimes these things are, again, very dangerous, but that's the reason why I think being an entrepreneur has this, you know, this, you're playing with fire a lot because 
you have this this need to get people like you're they're all looking at you what do i do right. where are we going like they all want to know what's going to happen next and you literally are the person who's standing there in a sometimes a room that's on fire and you like point them to one direction and say that's where we're gonna go and and hopefully when you go there there's no fire and 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 sometimes there still is and so it's always this this uh this this is crazy excitement. That's why you have to be psychotic to be an entrepreneur because you're literally <laughs> like comfortable with this type of thing on a daily basis. Um, and it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy every day. And breaking for a minute to say business can be done from anywhere in the palm of your hand and at the source. However you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Hey, everybody. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. Together, we're hosting a new Forbes podcast called Overworld. It's all about video games and the impact they have on art, culture, society, history, all that good stuff. It launches Tuesday, September 19th, and we'll post every Tuesday thereafter. So please subscribe at podcastone.com, the new Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you hear your shows. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Mini bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Do you find that people ever drink their own Kool-Aid and become a little too impressed with their own vanity metrics to the point uh, to their detriment? Yeah, it happens all the time, right? And you see these examples usually sensationalized in the press. And I think it's it's they learn their lesson. Um, there's all, I learned my lesson too, just in the early days, luckily, and not now. And and I think it's it's about having a chance to look at yourself in the mirror multiple times a week and making sure you have a, a reality check on what's going on. I think it's also having people around you that aren't just, you know, nodding their heads at you mm-hmm. all the time. That's a big, that's really important. Um, I have people around me that will, that love shooting me down and, <laughs> you know, putting me in my place. They yeah. just love it. It's like, it's like their thing. And I need that because it means that I don't, think that everything's always you know golden golden dust and and and, and pixie dust it's, it has to right. be there has to be some reality well what i want to get to the core metrics behind keep now but what was the what was the lesson where did you learn your lesson what were you doing well it's really been in this whole industry it was, it was a giant lesson for me just advertising and media um you can have what you believe is the most amazing thing but unless you have real you know, sort of success and clients to prove for it. Uh, it doesn't matter what you create. Uh, you're not going to succeed. And so bluntly, you know, people will come to you with this amazing advertising product. Like, yeah, this thing's going to solve all problems. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's going to like, like ridiculous things you hear. They're like, this is so cool, you know. Um, and then you're like, well, does any advertiser want to buy it? And when they buy it, do they want to keep buying it? And do people who actually see these ads want to buy their product that's literally the three most simple questions to ask and 
what happened was I didn't know those three questions in the beginning. And you kind of swim in your own echo chamber and go, oh, yeah, this is so cool. You need constant validation from the customer, especially right. when you're in an ecosystem where there's so many buyers and so many options. So that was really the, the, the big reality check and lesson here. And it still is the case now, and it changes. That's the other part. It changes almost every month. Like there's a new flavor of the month. Like people want to, you know, ex you know, you've heard about ad fraud and viewability metrics and all that stuff. It's, yeah. it's still kind of an issue right now. But the next issue is around what, like, you know, is is once they view it, you know, is it a valid view? Like, are they buying from that view? I mean, there's so many things that we're going to get to, and and you just need to try to figure out where the puck's going to go, and then that's how you keep yourself on your toes. And that's really been. Uh, the last seven years of this business is constantly doing that. I love the hockey uh, analogy that you just slipped in. Look at where <laughs> the puck is going to be. Uh, I think only another Canadian would have picked up on that, just to just to pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Brian, can you talk a little bit about the growth of Keep? You know, how big is it now, um, and how quickly has it grown? Yeah. So we, you know, I would say the first few years were again that discovery phase. Like I said, we were few years early, I'd say we, we really caught the wind in our backs maybe three years ago, started growing from there. Um, we've been growing around 40% year over year. This year, we're going to do 20 million in revenue plus. Um, we are about 70 full time right now um, across six offices. Uh, there are three in the US. Those are our, actually no, four in the US, sorry. Um, those are our, our main sort of areas because we, we are primarily domestic, but we are looking at international growth as our, our kind of our next focus right now. Um, yeah, so our core metrics are around, you know, our revenues, of course, our inventory. So the amount of moments that we have available uh, to serve our rewards into. Uh, we have our client retention numbers that matter. So how much we're churning, how much we're keeping. Um Average IO size or deal size is really important. So knowing how how much money we're getting per deal or per client, and that's important because you know we could fight super hard to get ten ten thousand dollar deals or just one hundred thousand dollar deal that we use the same effort for. That for us is is, is obviously a measure of our sales efficiency. Um, so those are key metrics. Employee retention is also important for us. Um, there is a huge issue around recruiting in the Valley. I'm sure you've talked yeah. about it on the show and folks have brought it up. Yeah, you got to really compete against like the Googles and the Facebooks, which is, seems almost impossible, but it's doable. Um, but you almost want to plan for churn, like knowing that certain employees aren't going to be with you longer than that two people years are going to get even. poached. Yeah. Um, and if you actually spend time with your engineers and see what they get exposed to on a daily basis, you'll understand. Like they get you know, 10 recruiters on a daily basis, right. hitting them up on all channels, right? And it's so so distracting to the point where I also recommend some of my engineers just not even bother check LinkedIn. And I'm like, it's not because I don't want you to have a good pay or a good job. Well, make sure you are, but just, just you're going to get distracted. And, you, and grass is always green on the other side. And it's just, you, you, you just don't know all the information and details. And so if you're always looking over your shoulder, you're not going to be productive at your own job. Focus on building something great in one place for a couple of years. And then, yeah, it's fine. Go hop to something else. But for people who hop after a year, for me, it's extremely distracting. And right. Very, it's a time know, suck. Productive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so how do you incentivize them to stay two, three years uh, and invest the time? 
it's the hard work. So people always think there's a silver bullet. The hard work is you give them exciting projects. You let them bring ideas to the table to introduce new, brand new programming languages, brand new open source projects, brand new things like blockchain initiatives, things like that that they want to sink their teeth into. Bottom line is people want a place where they can constantly learn. And so there isn't a heart like a silver bullet where it's like, hey, well, you know, we, we've tried all the perks, right? I'm talking everything from free like smoothies to massages to Zen moments in the morning with a with a yoga instructor. <laughs> you, you name it. We we literally have done it all. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many uh, perks you bring in. It still doesn't matter if they don't have anything exciting to build. Right. So it, it, it's so frustrating though because it still is something that's expected and like i still see stuff that i roll my eyes to like you know and i we kind of have to do them but i like you know we get like you know just this morning was like hey we snack request form and i'm like you know facepalm and i'm like i guess people do want to have their snacks but it's, <laughs> it's one of those things and, and 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 so i i constantly you know and i get to see both too right because now i live in new york well technically i also have my apartment in san francisco so i live in both cities I split my time, and there's a very, very distinct difference in uh, workplace uh, sort of perks and benefits and then workplace culture and uh, work ethic. It's interesting to hear you say that because I think San Francisco is full of startup graveyards where there's still like a, a top-of-the-line vending machine, all-you-can-eat snack. Yo- there's probably a yoga instructor in some of these places in the mission, but the, the companies went out. Yeah, I mean, tell me a company that has the slickest offices with the most ridiculous. I think what it is is I got to tell you, just be blunt. It is them emulating Google and Facebook and and companies that are making billions in profit. Then they can do that, right? Salesforce, billion, that's why they can build these ridiculous towers that have ridiculous like <laughs> LED screen walls because they have excess money to do right. this with. But when you're a venture funded company. You don't have that extra excess money until you're ridiculously profitable. Then you can hire a full-time barista sitting in the lobby of your office. That's right. When you're not, you should not be doing it because it's a total illusion. So you're I walking around with a fake handbag. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's pretending you're rich, and you shouldn't be doing that because it just creates the wrong idea, and people do not end up being scrappy. And they have this mindset of like, well, oh, I might as well just expense this and expense that because – you know, everyone else is doing right. it and it's like everything's about this this excess. And so I think what I thought would have happened a couple of years when we had this the inkling of the correction, people thought there's gonna be this big correction. And then what ended up happening is even more venture capital than pouring in. I think what's happening is there is a bit more of a culture around profitability and making sure that you actually earn you you you, you earn what you keep. The good news is the, the close founder friends of mine, yes, we're all like laser focused on profitability laser focused on revenue growth, laser focused on creating value for customers and continuing to, 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 to build value um, rather than show value, which has really been kind of, you notice, Keep, we were very active in the press a few years ago, very active. I'm talking literally every day was when you press it. Right. And I loved it. It was like, oh, we're all over the place. Everyone loves us and everything's exciting. But we didn't have the revenues to show for it. And now it's... You know, important to get your press out there when you want to announce new products. But we've been largely less focused on creating press. You're focused on the work. More focused on the customer acquisition and customer retention and customer growth. Well, you mentioned, Brian, like how to incentivize uh, engineers and keep people happy. But I suspect that you need that too. So what is it that you want to be doing that you're not doing? Where do you want to go next? For myself? Yeah. 
you know, I think the biggest litmus test is are you having fun? And uh, my mom told me this, you know, right when I when I first started this, she's like, just tell me when you're not having fun anymore. <laughs> and I still see my parents probably, you know, three or four times a year. So yep. I, I get a good, decent amount of time to spend with them. And I'm still having tons of fun. So that's why I've been I'm still running this thing seven years later. Um, but, but I think the, the bottom line is I try not to get too distracted too. people will. Oh, are you? you know, investing in other things? Are you building other companies? Like all this, I'm just like, no, I think there is a, a lot of respect in the ecosystem for folks that have built things and keep them sustained and give them almost its own entity. And then whatever happens, whatever happens where maybe I'm not in, in the picture in the next few years, who knows what's going to happen? I want Keep to remain this very solid sort of respected entity that's its own self-sustaining vehicle, you know, and that's that's exciting. I think there's nothing more um, sort of rewarding than to see your baby grow and be an actual person, right? And I think the challenge with the valley is that the, the culture is very like, oh, it's okay if I kill the baby because I just go on to the next one because I get no backlash, right? right. And it's like, it. I'm not worried about the backlash and that shouldn't be a motivation it should the motivation should be your desire to create something from start to finish or at least have a sustained entity that actually creates change in the industry that you're in um that's i think the new the new billion dollar startup because for a while everyone's like oh, i want a billion dollar company a billion dollar this yes it would be nice if you make it a billion dollars but wouldn't it be even nicer if yes you can get to a billion but you actually change an industry you create a product that changes people's lives and you focus on creating value for all of your constituents in the process. The value I believe we've created so far is not just what we've done to help the industry think about advertising differently, which I believe we've done. You know, we people mm -hmm. think about moments now, moments has crept into almost I'd say ninety percent of the advertising conversations that we have. And we're also at the same time creating value for our employees, right? They now have something that they can use to develop their careers. And we've had people who have gone off and done amazing things. And that makes me so happy because it created value for, you know, hundreds of people's lives now that have gone through the company and, um, and, and beyond. That's great. Brian, I just want to ask one final question here at the close. I mean, having knowing the growth of keep is it ever draining on you to have people to be the founder to be at the helm and to have people look to you for answers in a business where you're innovating and there really is no template yeah it is very draining and it's part of your job and you need to make sure you can recharge and put yourself mentally in a position where you can handle that stuff regularly that's why like i i, I advocate for, for this a lot it just probably popped up on my, my LinkedIn feed because of this business insider video I did recently around um, taking a, a splurge day or like a, a mind space sort of vacation. The, the concept is not to be a lazy potato and, and just sleep all day, but rather uh, take time away from your digital media and to intentionally recharge and, and, and let yourself absorb what's happened. So the basic concept is with anything, if you're constantly, you know, using it, it's going to overheat, right? If you let it breathe for a bit, it, it'll get back to its, its original state. Same thing as your human, as your brain and your body. Give yourself a day. It's okay to give yourself a day 
I call it sorry, again, that many vacation. You take maybe a day or two days right. every month. Literally do nothing related to work, right? Do the things you love. Uh, for me, it's any combination of whatever it is, like from swimming to eating great food to playing seeing hockey. when this when the play hockey when the season's right, all this stuff. So you just do those things, and then it lets you take your mind off of it. And it's really healthy for you. And and the other thing I would say is, if you're in a state where you're like, oh, I have no time to do that, then you're doing it wrong, right? Your your time management sucks. You should <laughs> be able to manage your time to the point where you actually have that ability to do that, right? It is that simple. Um, and I don't want to be rude about it, but it's kind of true. Now, in the early days, yeah, maybe you have to kill yourself for a few months, but that's really the max. Right. You shouldn't be doing this constantly. At some point, there needs to be the ability for you to take a step back and relax. It's true. If you don't have the time to do something that will vastly improve your life or quality of life, you're probably doing something wrong. Correct. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. I played hockey actually in Oakland for a little while. Where do you play? So now I'm in New York, so I play at Chelsea Piers. Oh, okay. Um, but when I was in San Francisco, I played at uh, Yerba Buena. Yerba Buena. So really I, try, cool. I played pickup yeah. games there too. There you go. <laughs> great. Maybe, 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 we, maybe we cross paths on the ice. Yeah, maybe we play a match. Who yeah. knows? I was a defenseman. <laughs> um, all right, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, good luck with everything. Take care. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcast1.com. Oh, brother. The reason it's called the NFL, not for long. It's sports-related with Jordan and Luke Rogers. The Chargers football is not going to work in Los Angeles. I got hit by a car on my scooter eight days before our first game of my senior year. I was out there playing. No rib strain's going to keep me out. JoJo, what is the last book that Jordan read? I think he just likes to read Twitter articles. Download new episodes of Sports Related every Friday on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. It's the semi-annual sale at Mattress Firm. For a limited time, get huge savings of up to $500 on our top-rated mattresses. We have more than 15 beds with over four-star ratings on sale store-wide. Like our fan-favorite Serta Memory Foam Queen mattress, now just $397. You won't find this deal anywhere else. But hurry in, this sale ends Tuesday. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com sale. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he'd never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.